You're listening to Scaling Up Services, where we speak with entrepreneurs, authors, business experts, and thought leaders to give you the knowledge and insights you need to scale your service-based business faster and easier. And now, here is your host, business coach, Bruce Eckfeld. Are you a CEO looking to scale your company faster and easier? Check out Thrive Roundtable. Thrive combines a moderated peer group mastermind, expert one-on-one coaching, access to proven growth tools, and a 24-7 support community. Created by Inc. award-winning CEO and certified scaling-up business coach Bruce Eckfeldt, Thrive will help you grow your business more quickly and with less drama. For details on the program, visit Eckfeldt.com slash Thrive. That's E-C-K-F-E-L-D-T dot com slash Thrive. Welcome, everyone. This is Scaling Up Services. I'm Bruce Eckfeldt. I'm your host. And our guest today is John Willerow. He is founder of Value Builder Systems. He's also the author of The Automatic Customer and Built to Sell. John was in our program, I think it was last year, early last year, and we talked a little bit about what it takes to build a valuable, sellable company. Today, we're going to talk a little bit more about what it takes to be happy after you do that. A lot of research, a lot of insight that's gone into what happens during the selling process, after the selling process. What do you need to do as founder, as CEO, as entrepreneur to make sure that that's going to be a positive experience for you and what you can do beforehand as you're building the company, actually developing a plan and making sure that you're going to be happy, engaged, thriving on the other side of that. So with that, John, welcome to the program. Hey, thanks, Bruce. Good to be with you. So why don't we talk a little bit about just give people kind of a base understanding of your background and the books for those people that haven't read Built to Sell, the experiences you've had, the methodologies, the insight that you've created on what it takes to build a valuable company that's sellable. And then we'll talk a little bit about this next phase of actually selling it. And what do you need to keep in mind as an entrepreneur, as an owner to make sure that you're going to be happy? Yeah, sure. So I've been involved in a few businesses that I've built and sold. I wrote a book called Built to Sell after that and try to codify the learning. And the company Value Builder sort of came out of that book where we help entrepreneurs entrepreneurs improve the value of their company leading up to an exit. We've worked with some 50,000 business owners now over the last seven years. And one of the things that I found interesting is that in many cases, business owners were striving for the highest possible valuation for their company and then ending up in terribly miserable after the sale. <laughs> yeah. And so they kind of check the box on, on you know, got maximum price, but end up being horribly upset and depressed after the sale. So it sort of triggered a bunch of research for us. And, and um, I think we learned quite a bit about what makes people happy after a sale and try to codify some of that in, a, in something called Prescore, which is a new tool we launched. Oh, awesome. Yes. I, and I've, I mean, I, I was mentioning before we got on the uh, recording here, you know, I, I sold my business I think I went through a little bit of that, you know, a little bit of like, what do I do now? You know, you kind of this thing you've been working on for a decade and all of a sudden you sell it, you know, you do your transition, you're no longer running it. I think some people actually struggle with that part. (laughs) Just like you sell Mm -hmm. it, you're no longer in control, but you're still involved. But then, yeah, it's like, what do you do next? You know, how do you map that out? And certainly many, many people that I've worked with, colleagues of mine, you know, through EO, through YPO, you know, these groups that, um, you know, people sell and they they end up in this new context. And if they haven't done some planning and some thinking that it could, it 
can be it can be tough. So walk us through some of the things that you've been kind of discovering and the research you've been doing in, in terms of what contributes or what goes into or the factors involved in sort of successful exits, successful sales above and beyond just maximizing the financial side. Yeah. So the first one is getting clear on your pull factors. So I think every owner has push and pull factors when they sell their company, right? The push things are the things that frustrate you, right? The government regulation, the managing employees, whatever. The pull factors are the things that you're excited to go do. Climb a mountain, lose 10 pounds, write a book, start another business, whatever's on your list or your pull factors. And for a lot of owners, they're all push and no pull. They've got lots of reasons they want to sell, but very few few things they're excited to go do. And so I think the recipe for a bad exit is, is being all push, meaning all the things you're, you're, you're wanting to kind of get rid of. I mean, Bruce, in your case, what were your push factors, the things that you were frustrating you about your company? Yeah, it was interesting. There was, there was kind of market push factors. We were consulting, uh, development consulting services. Uh, and so there were changes in the, in the nature of the market that I just found our business model wasn't as interesting. The, the way we were going to be successful, uh, uh, was not a, a business model and a, and a type of company that I really wanted to be involved in. Uh, there was some just personal push factors in terms of, you know, having been at it for 10 years, you know, I, I was in the company, uh, leading the company for 10 years. And at some point uh, you get some fatigue and, and you're mm-hmm. looking for a change. And then you have business partners and, you know, the way you run into kind of strategic alignment issues and you realize that you're not going to be able to continue in the current situation. And so, you know, it exit becomes a way of resolving those things, monetizing it, and then giving you some, some runway. But yeah, I, I totally get that if it's driven by push, that there is, a, I think, a natural resistance in our psychology <laughs> to, not, to not want to change. So even if it makes logical sense that, oh, I should sell this thing, if you haven't created a driving, compelling reason, something that you're going to go do that's pulling you into something new, you're going to find ways of resisting it, whether, whether you oh, realize sure. it or not. Yeah, no, for sure. I'm reminded of, of a guy named Sean Oshman, who I, I interviewed for my podcast, Built to Sell Radio. The guy's business was in a, a funny spot. He was in Colorado. It was called I support you. And they were in IT support services. So you got your computer, you need to network it or get rid of a virus, whatever. He built it up to a couple million in sales. And he goes to a broker and says, look, I, you know, I want to sell. And the broker says, why? He says, well, I'm 39. And by my 40th birthday, I want to be living on a sailboat. And the broker says, okay, well, how much money do you need? And he says, well, you tell me what it's worth. And the broker says, well, it's, you know, it's probably worth two or three times what brokers refer to as SDE, which stands for seller's discretionary earnings. Mm-hmm. It's kind of, think of it as your full compensation and benefits from the business. So kind of two or three times. Oshman says, okay, fine. But the one caveat is that you've got to get it to me within a year because I want to be on my boat Uh, within a year. Broker comes back, gets him an offer. I'm going by memory, but I think it was 2.6 times SDE. Now, guys listening to this podcast, guys and gals listening to the podcast, will hear the the words 2.6 and think, wow, that's crazy. That's like really low. Why would he ever sell? Mm -hmm. Oshman sold bought his boat. And when I last spoke to him is happy as a clam sailing around the ocean with his fiance. He had a pull factor, right? Something that was excited to go do. So whether he got 2.6 or 3.1, it's a little bit less important than being really clear on what is, what's really motivating you next. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, there's almost, I mean, not to make it too analytical, but there's almost a, there's a value in his mind of being on a sailboat, right? And that, that's <laughs> worth something. And for him getting the money, even if it's a lower valuation, 
getting the money to be able to go do that other thing was in net, in total, more valuable than maybe taking, you know, getting a higher valuation, but dealing with, you know, not being able to do the other thing he wants to do for a couple of years because he's got to earn it out or it's, you know, it's going to be paid over time. You know, it's, it is this kind of being super clear on what your total value is or, or what is valuable to you and how you're going to offset those things. Yeah. How you're quantifying value. It reminds me of a guy that I interviewed who had a swimming pool company and he supplied uh, like lifeguards and swimming pool products and services to condominium buildings that had swimming pools. And he's going about his life. He's happy as a clam. I think he had a couple hundred of part-time employees. He was an EO guy, successful guy. And he goes to an industry conference where he learns that every seven years on average in that industry of managed swimming pools, somebody dies. And he went to bed that night thinking, oh my gosh, I've been in business for 11 years yeah, and we've never, <laughs> we've never had a drowning. I'm yeah, due. Yeah. And it, it was enough to get him to sell his company. Again, going back to what is the currency for you? In that case, that's a big push factor, right? That, you know, that wanting to avoid that is a big push factor. But it goes back to the idea of quantifying the peace of mind to know that you no longer own yeah. a business where someone could die. Yeah. You know, and I hate to be too, you know, morose about yeah. it and negative, but for him it was it was a big push factor. Yeah. Well, and I like that idea that it's I mean, I do this with my clients. So we sit down and we talk about, you know, where they want to be in three years, and we talk about where their company can go, what where they're gonna sell for, all this. And they always ask this question of then what? <laughs> like, okay, so you still mm. like then what? And if they don't have a good answer to the then what, I know that we need to work on that as well because I honestly I've seen people inadvertently, almost subconsciously blow up deals because because they get scared. They get scared of mm. well if I sell this, what am I going to do? And and what's my self-worth? What's my value? And they get so tied up into the company as a personal identity that they'll actually sabotage a deal that, that can be a great deal. But just because they don't have a plan and they haven't actually psychologically gone through the process of figuring out what their next phase is going to be. Yeah, that was that's number two on our list of, of kind of drivers of, of a happy and lucrative exodus is separating your ego <laughs> yeah. from your company. And there's some things like, so some counterintuitive things that are, are potential bellwethers of a problem to come. So for example, if your name is in the company name, it's really yeah. difficult to sell. Not only is it make it a difficult business to sell because you're obviously you're communicating to the market that you're part of the company. But equally, if your trucks are driving around town and it's like Jane Doe and and (laughs) sisters or John Doe and sons, you know, you feel a personal, like that's your family name and you no longer control it. You know, one of the, one of the things we, we ask business owners is say like, how would you be most likely to introduce yourself at a cocktail party? Would you be more likely to say I'm a business owner or I own a business. Now, those sound like basically the same thing, but there's a subtle but I think important difference. When someone says, I am a business owner, they're saying that that is who they are as a person. It's like, I am a basketball player. Well, that works out really well until you're 28 and you blow out your knee. Yeah, exactly. And then, and then being a basketball player, player. <laughs> is not so good on the self-worth, which is why so many ex-athletes oh gosh, go yeah. through the same thing as, as entrepreneurs, right? Yeah. They go from having so much of their identity rolled up. It reminds me, I interviewed a guy named Steve Merch. Steve was and is a, a tremendously successful entrepreneur. He's had four uh, companies. His first one was a company called the Vacation Spot was sort of an early precursor to Airbnb, sold it for like $78 million to Expedia. And if anybody on the planet could walk around with his chest puffed out and sort of claim that he is an entrepreneur, it would be Steve. But if you met the guy, 
it would be the last thing on your mind. He is, uh, when I first met him, he was, he was regaling a, a room on World War II history. And I'm like, who is this geek? And we've developed a great friendship since yeah. then. He is a tremendous World War II buff. He's, a, he's an avid cyclist. He's the chef in his family. He's the father of three kids. He's a, I mean, he's, he's got all these hats that he wears as well as being an entrepreneur. And he, to me, is the, is the gold standard, is separating your ego and your personal sense of self-worth from being a business owner. Yeah. Well, and the other one that, that, that comes out for me in that is I think a lot of people end up with this, you know, I'm going to build this business. I'm going to work 80 hour weeks. I'm going to dedicate myself, you know, burn myself out to the business and then I'm going to go relax and then I'm going to sit on a beach or something like that. And I, and I think that's just a recipe for disaster for most entrepreneurs. I mean, I mean, unless, I don't know, unless you're, you know, really ready for retirement, but even then I would say real entrepreneurs still want to do something pretty intensely. So you got to have something you're going to throw yourself into. Like if you just, if your plan is to kick back, uh, I'm not sure that works out very well most times. And I, I think yeah. that dedication is important. Another fun sort of marker of how well you're going to exit your company psychologically is just how many hours a day do you work in it? To your point, if, if you're 80 hour a week guy or gal now, you're not going to be able to just go down to zero. But if you've done a good job of cultivating some other interests, maybe maybe you're you're doing some coaching or maybe you're involved in your community in some level and you're down to like 20, 30 hours, you're going to have a much more successful business. I interviewed a guy named Damien James out of Melbourne, Australia. He runs a company or used to run a company called Dimple. They did like on-site podiatry work in old age homes. Yeah. And he was a classic entrepreneur, EO guy, actually hundreds of hours a month, you know, yeah. certainly 50 a week. And kind of got to a point where it was all too much and hired a 2IC, a second in command, mm -hmm. who we basically gave the operational control of the business to. He kicked himself up to being kind of in charge of vision and values. Mm -hmm. And the 2IC scaled up the company. Ultimately, Damien sold for, I think it was $13.2 million. He was down to one day a week in the company. Mm -hmm. That's a guy who's going to have a much more successful exit than the person who's working 80 hours a week and just just grinding it out, trying to get to the finish line. So hours in the day, as crude as that is as a proxy, it, I think is, is a good one. Yeah. Well, it's, I mean, it's it's almost like uh, withdrawal. <laughs> it's like you can't, yeah. you can't go to cold turkey on some of these things. You've got to wean yourself off of it and, and start to, to bring it down. Because if you try to go from you know 100 miles an hour to zero, it's going to it's gonna hurt and you're going to be left. <laughs> so I'm curious, so what else have you found or what are some of the other points that go into uh, you know a good plan like if when you're kind of you've successfully yeah. financially scaled the company you're going to sell what else do you need to make sure that you have in place to to make it a good exit the big one that a lot of entrepreneurs regret is at the a year or two after the fact they'll they'll have their feet up in the proverbial rocking chair and have the aha moment where they say huh i wonder if i left money on the table I wonder if I sold for a fair Sellers price. regret, yeah. Yeah, because, you know, if you get an offer, it's probably more money than you've ever seen in your life on paper. <laughs> you know, a multiple of what your home is probably worth. It can be destabilizing. It can be shocking. It can be an emotional roller coaster where you're like, oh my God, I'm going to get paid all this money. But you don't necessarily think, well, maybe there's someone else out there that would pay 10% more. And so we get, as entrepreneurs, oftentimes suckered into what's called a proprietary or prop deal, yeah. where a, a buyer is really only negotiating with you directly. There's no competition. Mm -hmm. And that's a recipe for regret, because if you get sucked into a prop deal, although you may get fair valuation, you'll never know. 
right? And the only way you'll know if you got a fair price is if you created some competition. In other words, got multiple offers. You saw what the market was willing to pay. You know, the inverse is is a recipe for disaster. And and that's why I think a lot of entrepreneurs, you know, we do ourselves a disservice, I think, to some extent by, by being rigidly, almost dogmatically clinging to this idea that it's got to be 100% cash at closing. Mm-hmm. And the problem with that strategy is that it is going to turn off a lot of potential buyers. You know, the vast majority of buyers out there are going to want you, the entrepreneur, to do some sort of transition. Yeah. You know, you know, small earnout. You know, if it's a private equity deal, the old recapitalization where you keep some equity or carry some equity. These are, you know, if you're open to these different structures, and look, I'm a, I'm a big value guy. I, I want you to get as much cash mm-hmm. as you can. Yeah. But if if you're totally closed down to any structuring at all, it means that a lot of buyers will walk and you may get left with either no buyers or or one. And that's, again, when you, you have the potential to look up at the end and go, oh man, did I leave money on the table? And so I would, I would encourage you to be open to all different structures. And in a funny way, the more open you are, the more offers you'll get. And the more offers you get, the more you'll be able to determine and dictate the terms you want. Absolutely. So it's, it's yeah. almost, but the inverse is not true. If you start the negotiation saying it's got to be 100% cash, man, you just you lose a lot of conversations before they even really start. Yeah. Well, and I think, I mean, like for the folks that are listening here, I mean, when we're talking about service-based business, this is going to be key because, I mean, unless you're dealing with, if you've got some IP or or you're going to, basically someone's buying you for your customer base or something like that, and there's really, there's no, there's no future value that they're paying you for that's based on the future performance of the business. Like they're, they're just doing a strategic deal to, to buy something that you have and they're going to create the value going forward, not you, then you can, you know, certainly you can push for much more kind of cash upfront deals, but anything that's service-based where you've got a client base, uh, services that you are involved in delivering in any way, you're going to have some kind of earnout. You're going to have some kind of proof of ongoing value. I mean, that's what they're buying, right? They're buying they're buying the future profits created. And if you're not sticking around to create those future profits, they're just, the value is not going to be there. So you could actually yeah, leave a lot of value on the table by, by not doing that. Like you're going to have to take a huge discount. And Certainly creating the competitive environment is key. I think it's hard if it's not part of your plan. If you haven't sort of set up a plan to say, okay, look, in the next 12, 24 months, this is what we're going to do. We're going to go out and sell the company because then you're going to get stuck in either, you know, kind of a fire sale situation where you have to sell for some reason, or you're going to get a situation where someone comes to you with an offer and says, hey, look, I want to buy your business. I'm going to give you X. But now you have nothing to compare it to. And it's, you know, usually it takes a little while to get some other buyers to the table. It may be a limited time offer and you're just not going to be able to create that situation. But if you have a plan, I think that's where you can you can create this. Give me a sense on your take on that. Yeah, absolutely. I agree 100%. I think, it, you know, the two most common reasons owners sell are, are number one, one, they have some sort of health event, which is a push factor, like a heart attack or whatever. Or number two, they get approached proactively by a buyer, which leads to a prop deal, which is, again, the recipe for diluting the value of your company. And so in both of those cases, you're on your back foot. And I agree 100%. I, I think you want to you wanna lead into your exit on your front foot, planning it proactively. And just to kind of round out our conversation around the fourth of four major drivers of value, it's being really proactive about your team. So one of the other areas we see a lot of regret from entrepreneurs after they exit is how their people were treated, right? So it's one thing to have a great exit personally, but if your employees end up 
unhappy in this situation, it can lead to tremendous regret. And you know, for a lot of us, our employees are the people that bring us to the dance. They're the ones that get us even into this into the, into yeah, the sale exactly. conversation, yeah. Yeah. right? And to feel like you didn't do well by them or they didn't do well by you, I should say, is is a biggie. I, I remember a woman I interviewed for the podcast named Connie Fenyo, Vancouver, Canada. I think it was Connie who, who insisted that the buyer keep the head office of her company in Vancouver for, I think it was two or three years after the sale. Yeah. And it was just because she knew a lot of her employees liked living there, right? And they and, and she wanted to give them enough runway that if they were going to leave the company, that they wouldn't be left high and dry. And and I think that's uh, that's a biggie for a lot of entrepreneurs who are just myopically focused on maximize value, maximize value, maximize value. But you could do that and end up feeling quite sad about the process. Yeah. And I think that um, it's an easy one to forget. I mean, you're you're in the the heat of the deal. You're, you're negotiating the terms. You're looking at the numbers. You're trying to get paper signed like without a little bit of perspective and a little bit of a plan around that thing. Yeah, I could see how that on the other side could lead to some some harsh feelings or some some regret on that you didn't do more. I mean, and it sounds like it's not just money. I mean, it's not just, okay, well, making sure that, you know, everyone's getting, you know, a little piece of the action or they're getting, you know, a financial reward, but actually thinking through the other kind of risks or impacts a sale can have on on people in an organization, whether it's yeah, where the office is located, how the management structure is in place, what clients you're keeping, what services or products you you keep or don't keep, you know, thinking through that. And it may, you know, it may not be a huge it may not have any impact on the terms of the deal. I mean there may be things you could put in there without really having to pay for it necessarily. But just thinking about it and having a plan and, and being aware of it could make sure you, you really feel good about the deal based on how you've you've really respected and treated the people that help you get there. I'd agree 100%. And one of the other elements of it is, is as trivial as it may sound, how are you going to tell them? If I had one question that comes up, and this is goofy, I, I do talks occasionally for entrepreneurs, EO groups and stuff, and, and I get asked, like, how do I tell my employees? Should I tell my employees? And, and being, again, thoughtful about that is really important. The answer to the question is, is no, you should not tell your employees. The fastest way to destroy your company in the process of selling it is to tell your employees because employees are employees for a reason, right? Like they thrive on, on the paycheck. They want to know that it's going to be there and they don't thrive on the, the unknown, which is what, yeah, yeah, what you thrive on as an entrepreneur. And so the first thing they do when they hear you're thinking of selling the company is they brush up their resume, they get their LinkedIn profile ready to go and they start reading reaching out to people in your industry. You know, the people in your industry find out you're for sale. They tell the competitors, they tell the customers, and pretty soon you're destroying tons of value along the way. The other thing to know is that for a lot of businesses that get an LOI, letter of intent, they don't consummate into a deal. Yeah, so exactly. if you've never gone through the process, you can think, okay, I've, um, I've got an LOI. I'm 95% of the way there. No, you're like 10% of the way there. <laughs> right? I was going like, to say about six. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You're not anywhere close. Yeah. And there are so many things that can go wrong between LOI and definitive deal that you have no control over, frankly. I was just interviewing a guy who was on the precipice like of selling his company to Compact. Do you remember Compact? Oh, yeah. They're now since defunct. Yeah. The uh, big personal computer maker. So he had a definitive or a, a LOI had gone through 60 days of due diligence, and Compact was supposed to be sending through the signed 
you know, share purchase agreement, essentially yeah. the consummation of the deal. It was a Friday afternoon. He was waiting by the fax. This was during the days of fax. Oh, fax machine isn't ringing. He was checking the the, yeah. <laughs> the toner and the font. He's not, like, <laughs> it's, plugged in. it's a phone line. Yeah, yeah, still he's, work. Like, exactly. Yeah, he's, exactly. <laughs> You're, the end of the day comes no share purchase agreement. And he goes home weekend is fussing about it, worrying about it, flips on CNBC uh, on Sunday and learns that HP and Compaq have just announced a merger. Monday morning goes in, the deal with Compaq is off and, and he's got nothing. But, but if you told all his employees, then, you know, you're, you're in a really bad way. So I'm not a big fan of telling employees you're thinking of selling it. It may make you feel like a, like you're cheating on your wife or your husband mm-hmm. when you walk around your company. But I think you've got to keep it very close to your vest until the check is cleared the bank. Yeah. Yeah. No, I agree. I would say, you know, you need to, you need to race through the finish line, right? Like you, you need to, to push through until the deal is done, until the cash is in the bank, until the ink is dry. Like you keep pushing, you run the company. Like, Cause the other thing I think that happens around that is, you know, people end up getting so focused on the deal that they start taking our eye off the ball in the company. And then the company performance starts to dip. You know, they're not there selling, they're not there managing, they're not there innovating. And now, you know, e- either the deal doesn't happen. And, and so now you've got to go back and pick up the pieces or the deal does happen. And part of your, part of your value is earn out. And now you're dealing with a you know company that's had a blip or is now you've got to kind of recover from that. So I think figuring out a way and then dedicating you know, time and energy to keep the company running while you're going through a sale process, it's, it's hard, but it's really, really important. Yeah. And it's, it's also one of the reasons why a proper proprietary deal is so dangerous. Because here's what happens. When you get sucked into a conversation with one buyer, there's a little light bulb that goes off in that buyer's head and says, okay, this guy's not negotiating with anyone else. Okay, let's get him a letter of intent. No problem. We'll say, oh, you know, we want to do our due diligence over 60 days. But again, they know that there's no one else at the table. So 60 days, 60 days turns into 90, 90 turns into 120. And if you're anything like any human being, you've already cashed the check in your mind. You bought the ski place. You you know, you you sort of checked a few purchases that you want to make. And to your point earlier, Bruce, there is the performance of the company may be drifting a little bit and you end up at the end of 120 days or more. And the buyer says, you know, I I said, you know, we were going to pay X, but now we're, we're thinking more like 20% less than X. The haircut. (laughs) Yeah. And now you're, now you're kind of screwed because what are you going to do? Say no. What are you going to do? Say no. You've invested all this time and money in the deal, you know, and then if you've, if you've told your employees now it's even harder to say no, right? Because you know, they're, they're all checked out. So my suggestion is don't tell your employees and unless they absolutely must be part of the sale process. In other words, the buyer, you know, has to interview uh, maybe one or two of your managers, then, I mean, that's a different story, but telling your rank and file employees, no. Yeah, no, I agree. And yes, I mean, every once in a while, there's, there's some key employees that have to be, you know, part of the deal process, either because they're, they're going to be part of the deal in some way, they're going to get some kind of retention agreements and stuff, or they're required or they're, you know, it's, it's needed information and due diligence. But yeah, no, that's and that's the classic problem is like you get you get committed to that, you get invested in that deal, and the LOI is going to be the best number you ever get. <laughs> like it just it only goes down from there. So um, yeah. you know, keeping yourself able to negotiate, able to walk away if you need to, is is key to creating that value. What else? I mean, I guess in terms of some of the psychological things, anything else that you've seen 
good sales, you know, owners that sell, other things they do to just kind of emotionally prepare themselves for the other side or things they do in the kind of transition process that would be helpful for folks here that are, you know, thinking about that at some point selling and things they need to kind of start doing now that would be helpful for them post-sale. Yeah, no, I think we've, we've talked about the four biggies. So to reiterate, you know, figure out your pull factors, what you're excited to go do. Number two, make sure that you have flexibility when you go into your sale. You're open to all different types of, of structuring so that you don't get suckered into a prop deal and then end up kind of questioning whether you got full value. Three, try to get the ego somewhat separate from your ownership of the company. And then and then four, just being proactive about how and in what way you want to tell your employees you've, you're selling the company, how you want to communicate that message, what if any sort of share you want to give to, to employees getting, getting really kind of, uh, proactive about that. Yeah. Any sense of time frame? And if, if someone, if they do have a plan or they have a, a goal to sell their company, when do they need to start kind of thinking about these things or, or, you know, when do they start working on things that's prepping them for a sale? How far in advance? What does that look like? Way earlier than you think. <laughs> Okay, so here's what here's what most entrepreneurs do, and I consider myself one. So I, you know, I, I say this with all with tremendous respect. We say, okay, we're going to build this company up until we maximize the possibility of what what the potential of the company is, right? And at the moment the economy peaks and our business has reached the zenith of what's possible, then we're going to sell, yeah. right? So a couple problems with that. Number one, the acquirer is starting their marathon. Just as you're finishing yeah. yours, they are starting theirs. So they want to know that if you got your business to whatever, 10 million in revenue, they want to know how they're going to get to 100. Mm -hmm. And if you've sopped up all the market share, then then they're not interested. I'm reminded of a guy named Rod Drury started Zero. Before he started Zero, he sold a company called Aftermail. He got two customers, two charter customers to buy his enterprise software. Just two of them, a million bucks each. So he had $2 million in revenue. And what most entrepreneurs do at that point is they say, okay, yeah, we've got two Fortune 500 companies. Let's go sell to the other 498. Rod takes a different tactic. He says, you know what? I don't have any. There's a lot of operational risk in selling to the other 498. Yeah. Quest Software already has relationships with all of the Fortune 500 companies. Why don't I just sell my business to them? He sells it to Quest who pays him $45 million for a $2 million company. Yeah. Like it's, it's, a, I mean, that's not going to show up any valuation tables, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Strategic <laughs> you know, deal. Yeah. That's just yeah. That's so amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. But the, the, the way it was possible was he wasn't greedy. He sold way earlier. The other thing that I think is important to remember when what kind of dilutes the, the idea of waiting till the market has peaked for businesses like yours, and I'm, I've got air quotes going, in my office is that no matter what market you sell out of, you've got to buy into the same market. It's just like selling a house, right? So if you sell, you know, out of, if companies like yours are trading at whatever, yeah. 12 times EBITDA and it's the most they've ever traded for. Well, guess what? The Dow Jones is also trading the most yeah, it's exactly. ever traded at. Exactly. And you've got to do something with the money. Yeah. And so. Yeah, uh, it's like buying a home. And unless you're going to go rent for a while, <laughs> wait for the market yeah. to cool off. But someone's going to write a fat check for your business very few people have the discipline to just put it in the bank. They're, you know, most people are going to, you know, they're going to buy some commercial real estate. They're going to buy some vacation property. They're going to buy some stocks. And all those three things are correlated to the exact same market that you just sold out of. Yeah, yeah. And so I think waiting until the market, air quotes, 
has peaked is a fool's errand from start to finish. Yeah, yeah. John, this has been a pleasure. If people want to find out more about you, about Value Builder, about the work that you've been doing, about some of the research that you've talked about, what's the best way to get a hold of that information? Just head out to valuebuilder.com. I'll make sure that that's in the show notes so people can click through and get that. John, this has been a pleasure. Thanks for doing a follow-up episode here. Really interesting, really important conversation. I think uh, you know people on this podcast who are growing and scaling the business and, and looking for that sale are going to get some great takeaways and some great value. So thanks for taking time today. Fun to be with you, Bruce. Thank you. You've been listening to Scaling Up Services with business coach Bruce Eckfeldt. To find a full list of podcast episodes, download the tools and worksheets, and access other great content, visit the website at scalingupservices.com. And don't forget to sign up for the free newsletter at scalingupservices.com slash newsletter. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.